Hi, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and learn how to serve Him His way. The lesson that you're about to hear is part of an exciting series coming from Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches of Asia. This is the third in that series. If you haven't heard the others, there's one entitled Christ Counsels His Churches, another one Christ Counsels Ephesus, and now we're going to be looking at the second church in that list, Christ Counsels Smyrna. So please, open your Bible to Revelation chapter 2, and let's learn what Jesus expects from us as he counsels his churches. The seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation all represent different approaches relating to Christ and to Christianity within a culture that is opposed to Christianity. We've already learned about the Ephesian church, the church that while it had done many good things and continued to do many good things, it had left that betrothal love for Jesus. And Jesus, of course, rebuked them and encouraged the Ephesian church to get back to those first works that they had done with that intense devotion that they had for God, like the one who was newly married. And as we continue down the road in Revelation, it's the letters here would come to a church in Smyrna as Christ counseled that church. Unlike Ephesus, Christ had no rebuke for this church in Smyrna. He offered some encouragement. He offered comfort. He offered hope. He offered a warning of what was going to come. But there was no rebuke. As we take a look at these verses in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, this is the shortest of the letters that Jesus has. It says in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8, "...to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes..." The first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. When I first began to take a look at this letter in preparation for the series that we're going through just off and on throughout this year, it just almost seemed to me, if I might say this, kind of like a, you know, just a, a throwaway letter. It, was just, it, was just, it just had a little bit of information and it didn't say too much. And it, wasn't, it wasn't contrasting with the rebuke like we looked at Ephesus. And I even thought briefly about just combining it in with one of the other letters, so that we could just briefly point out that God said these great things about them and, and encouraged them and then move on. But the more I studied it and the more that I looked at it, the more struck I was by the message that really is contained in this shortest letter in the list. And I want us to pay careful attention to what it says and how it really does fit on our society today and what happens with us as Christians today. I'm not sure about you and your experience in talking with other people, but one of the things I've found when you talk to folks about what the Bible demands, and this is when you're talking about how to become a child of God, when you're talking about how to live in your marriage, when you're talking about how to live on the job, when you're talking about how to survive just as a Christian in life, one of the things that I most often hear from people is, I just can't believe that Jesus expects me to do fill in the blank. And when they say that, it's rarely backed up with any type of Scripture to support what they have to say. Typically, the whole concept is just that we've talked about something that is anathema to them, and they're convinced because of their gut emotional reaction against whatever we've taught or whatever we've said, that God must find it equally abhorrent. 
However, we need to remember what it says in Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning at verse 8. In Isaiah chapter 55, beginning at verse 8, the Scripture there says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If our argument or our contention is nothing more than I just can't imagine that Jesus would expect such and such, we've got to realize that God doesn't think like us. If we're going to take a certain action or follow a certain approach or walk down a certain road, we have to have more than just this is what, the way I think it ought to be because God doesn't think like we think. And God most certainly expects different things than we might naturally expect. As we take a look at what Jesus said to this church at Smyrna, we find out exactly what Jesus does expect. And I'm going to warn you, it's a little bit surprising. It goes against what we might naturally want Jesus to expect of us. I think that in our society today, and even among Christians today, we have this subconscious view, and for some it's not quite subconscious, it's very conscious, that the thing that God wants for us the most is to be healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. And we play these tricks on our minds such that if we ever get into a situation that keeps us from being healthy, wealthy, and comfortable... We either, one, think that God has abandoned us, or two, we decide that, well, this just must not be what God expects. Because clearly, God would never expect me to go through hardship and suffering and turmoil. Surely, He wouldn't expect me to miss a meal every now and again. Surely, He wouldn't expect me to go through hardship. After all, I have made this amazing decision to turn my life over to Him. I humbled myself before Him and confessed my sins and submitted to Him in baptism. Surely, He wouldn't expect me to endure any kind of hardship. Surely, He's going to make it easy for me. He owes me. Look at what I've done for Him. And yet, as we take a look at what is said to Smyrna, we find out that Jesus' expectations are quite a bit different from that. I want us to take a look at what He says here. And we're going to notice Jesus' expectations of us, and we're going to notice Jesus' promise to us. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we live in a hard world. Satan has entered the world and sin has entered the world and because of that, things are just upside down here. And even those of us who have named your name, have become your children, face all manner of trial and tribulation and oppression and struggles and hardships. Father, we pray that you would give us the strength because we're weak. We pray that you would strengthen us to hang on. Father, we recognize that many people today Instead of hanging on, expect you to get rid of all the hardships. And we know that your word says otherwise. And we pray that you would lift us up and place our feet on the broad ground, on the high ground. That we might fight the battle against Satan and against sin and that we might overcome. Father, we love you and we pray that you would help us and strengthen us to live up to your expectations. Please forgive us because we've fallen short so many times. Too many times we've taken the easy road. And we pray that you would forgive us for that and help keep us on the straight and narrow path. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.
As we take a look at Smyrna here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, we're going to notice three things that Jesus does, in fact, expect. There, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, Jesus said that, I know your tribulation. Jesus does, in fact, expect us to endure tribulation. Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, Paul had gone through and established these churches and now he and Barnabas were on their way back and he was encouraging them. And i got to tell you, it's very interesting to me. In Acts 14.22, Paul was encouraging them with this message. To us, this message doesn't sound all that encouraging. To us, we want Paul to say something like, look, hey, Jesus is going to take care of all that. There's not going to be any more tribulation." But rather, He encouraged them by helping them understand this. Acts 14.22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He's pointing out to them, hang on, because this is the path. You're on the right path of the kingdom of God when you're going through tribulation. We want to hear that the tribulations are going to stop. But Paul's encouragement was, hey, if you're going through tribulation, you're on the right path. If you're going through hardships, you're going the right way. This was his encouragement. We are going to suffer tribulation. The path into the kingdom is not a rose garden. It's a tough, hard, straight, and narrow way. And Jesus does, in fact, expect us to endure tribulation. We find that hard to believe. Surely Jesus wouldn't expect us to suffer. He loves us. And yet, as he looked at Smyrna, He said, I know your tribulation. I find this very interesting. Flip back over there to Revelation 2. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation. He says, I know what you're suffering. But what we'd almost expect him to say is, I know what you're suffering and I'm going to end it. But that's not what he says. In In verse 10, he says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for ten days. What does Jesus say to these Christians in Smyrna? He says, I know what you're suffering and I know how much you're going to keep on suffering. He says, you've been suffering and you're going to suffer some more. He's not stopping it. It's going to happen. It's going to continue on. Jesus does, in fact, expect us to endure tribulation. Perhaps we should view this as tribulation just related to persecution. We're suffering simply because somebody doesn't like the fact that we're Christians and so they're causing us to suffer. But within the biblical context, I'm not always sure that's the case. If you look in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, we find one example here. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, if someone's suffering, and it's not directly because they're Christians. It's not somebody persecuting them. They're just suffering because they're obeying their Master, the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18, it says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. 
Here's a person that's suffering, and it's not, it's not somebody persecuting because they're a Christian. It's not somebody beating them because they won't deny Christ. It's just somebody who was a servant who had an unreasonable master. Their master was mean. may not have had anything to do with the fact that the servant was a Christian. They were just mean. And Peter said, listen, God finds favor in those who patiently endure suffering. Who suffer when they've done nothing wrong, but bear up under it patiently. We as Christians are going to suffer. We're going to endure tribulation. This world is a world of suffering. And we're going to go through all of that. We're going to go through suffering because we're going to decide to obey God even though it leads to suffering. We're going to obey suffering because there are going to be some folks that persecute us for being Christians. We're going to go through all of that. Now, let me point out, I'm not saying that if you never suffer, that all by itself means you can't be right with God. I'm just saying that if obeying God leads to suffering... Jesus most certainly expects us to endure it. And of course, if we don't ever go through any suffering, perhaps we need to remember what it says in Luke 6. But that's for another lesson. He said, I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty. Jesus does, in fact, expect us to endure poverty. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8 I believe, is one of the most often misused passages in the Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We see that this passage points out to us that we're supposed to provide for our own. And far too many Christians have used this verse and they just run wild with it beyond what Paul was writing to Timothy. And you'll find folks that own two cars and a house that has a bedroom for every child, three TVs, two computers, and a bass boat, and they're working on these jobs that negatively impact their service to God. And when you go to them and ask them about that, these jobs that might cause them to repeatedly miss assemblies and classes, jobs that cause them to keep from being able to develop relationships with brethren, jobs that cause them to keep putting off getting into the Bible and keep putting off prayer. And it's not necessarily that they're just intent on being unspiritual. It's just the fact that they've got all these things that are going on and all that stuff, the, the spiritual stuff keeps getting put on the back burner. And when you go to them and talk to them, they say, hey, 1 Timothy 5.8. God expects me to provide for my family. That's what I'm doing. And it's tacitly saying, well, I just can't imagine that God would ever expect me to be a little poor. Surely God would never, ever expect me in His service to miss a meal. And yet here he knew their poverty. I want you to go back in history and think about what happened with them. A lot of times what would happen with these Christians in Smyrna and then Asia and during this time of the Roman Roman government, if you became a Christian, it it meant you were going to lose your job. We talked about this in our Bible class in the back as we were thinking about Revelation. You know, if you were during this time period with Smyrna, and let's just say you were a blacksmith. If you were a blacksmith, in order to receive blacksmithing jobs, in order for people to bring you their horseshoes and whatever else they might need you to work on, you had to be a member of the Blacksmith Guild. And in order to be a member of the Blacksmith Guild, once a year with the Blacksmith Guild, you would have to honor and celebrate the god of the forge, Vulcan. And you'd have to offer sacrifices to him and praise him and worship him. And if you decided not to do that, you couldn't be a part of the guild. You'd be kicked out of the guild. And so there's these Christians. Could they do that? Could they offer the sacrifice to Vulcan? Absolutely not. 
They could no longer be a part of the guild. And if they were no longer a part of the guild, the others would no longer bring the work to them. And merely by becoming a Christian, a lot of these people, they just lost their jobs. Can you imagine that if when, some, if, if when the person that was studying with you said, oh, by the way, just so you'll know, you realize when you become a Christian, you're not going to be able to be a blacksmith around here anymore. You're not going to be able to fix cars or be a doctor or, or, or do whatever it is because folks just aren't going to bring you the work because you're not going to be able to honor those gods. And that's what was happening with a lot of these people. Just becoming a Christian meant being poor. We often think about those people that were thrown to the lions. I wonder how many of them just starved to death. Because in order to accept Christ, they had to give up their livelihood. But surely God would never expect that. Surely Jesus would never expect us to go through poverty. And yet, what did He say here? He says, I know your poverty. Benjamin Franklin once said, It's better to go to sleep hungry than to wake up in debt. I think Jesus might change that to say, it's better to go to sleep hungry than to wake up in sin. There are far too many folks that it's almost as though we have that subconscious and perhaps conscious mindset that God would never expect me to deny myself anything. And many of our credit card statements attest to that fact. And mine is no exception. But it's time we remember Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Being a Christian means denying self. It doesn't mean I still get everything I want and go to heaven. I'm certainly not suggesting that being a Christian for us means that we absolutely have to be poverty-stricken. It doesn't mean taking a vow of poverty. I'm not saying that. I'm just pointing out that if serving God faithfully leads us to poverty, Jesus most absolutely expects us to endure that. He does expect that. And He also expects us to endure slander. There in Revelation chapter 2, and verse 9, as it says, I know the blasphemy by those who... Oh, you know what? By the way, i got to back up and wait, make one more comment before we move on from poverty that I almost forgot. But you are rich, Jesus said. We've got to understand what the true riches are. If we endure poverty because we are serving God, Jesus says that's when you're truly rich because we've got the kingdom riches the riches that endure, that will last not just throughout this world, but throughout eternity. Then he says, I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Within the context here, this term blasphemy is probably not relating to blasphemy against God, but talking about slander. If you look in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, in Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 31, it says in Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, uh, along with all malice. That word for slander, it's the same word in the Greek as we find there in Revelation. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, we find a similar list. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, 
and abusive speech from your mouth. So this term, sometimes it's referencing slandering God, sometimes it's talking about slandering one another. And I think within the context here, as he's talking about what the Christians in Smyrna were suffering, he points out that he knows the tribulation, he knows the poverty, and he knows the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The folks who say that they are Jews but are not, it's not likely that that's referring to Gentiles who pretend to be Jews. I believe what Jesus was pointing out in this letter is that here are folks that are Jews, but they're not truly Jews. They're not truly following the law of God to its logical conclusion of submitting to Jesus Christ. You remember in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, the Scripture there said that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Basically, Jesus' point is is that Jews who are truly Jews, who are truly following the law of Moses, would have been led to Christ. Here are folks claiming to be Jews and following the law of God. He says, but they're really not. Instead, they are slandering you. These are people who believe that they are the synagogue of God, but Jesus says they're not. They're the synagogue of Satan. There are lots of Christians today that seem to live by the idea that we, nobody should ever talk ill about us. If we are really following God's Word exactly the way it says, then everybody should just love us and be peaceful toward us and just talk all these nice things about us. But what this passage says is Jesus most certainly expects us to endure slander. You remember what happened a couple of months ago? Or maybe, it's, I'm not even sure how long ago it's been now. With the gospel preacher that had gotten shot by his wife. And then the person got on TV and said, oh, those churches of Christ, they're just a cult. Some fringe lunatic group that tries to brainwash people. And I got on a website that I frequent sometimes. It's a, it's, it's a blog site, and there's a lot of Christians on there. And one of the things that I kept seeing all over the place is, oh no, see how people view us? Oh, they think we're a cult. What are we doing wrong? Oh, we must have done something wrong because people are looking down on us and saying all these bad things about us. Oh, we need to change. We need to be doing something different. Remember in the Scripture, the church was called the sect everywhere spoken against. And so I just typed in on my little blog, you know what, I'm glad the guy called us a cult. Because that means somebody, somewhere, must still be doing their job. We must disabuse ourselves of this idea that somehow we can teach the truth and everybody's going to like it. They're not. They're going to make fun of us. They're going to mock us. They're going to call us names. We're going to be misogynists or homophobes or annies. They're going to say that we hate these people and we don't do this and they don't like that and we're too good and all these things. We're going to endure the brunt of their jokes. We're going to endure slander. And Jesus most certainly expects us to endure it. There is no way that we can teach the truth of the gospel in such a way that everybody's going to like us and say all sorts of nice things about us. It just doesn't happen. And Jesus says that we're blessed when people slander us, but woe to you when all men speak well of you. I'm not saying that one of the steps to salvation is you have to go through slander. I'm just pointing out that if serving God leads people to slander us, Jesus most certainly expects us to endure it. We want to have the idea that being a Christian means leading to health, wealth, and comfortability. Jesus expects us to endure 
tribulation, poverty, and slander. And as you look there again in Revelation chapter 2, he says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. This is happening because Jesus is testing us. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2? Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2, as God talked about these Old Testament saints, He said, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Just as God was testing those Israelites through walking them through the wilderness, Jesus is testing us. Will we submit to His commands? Will we do what He says? Or will we make up some excuse? Believing that surely God would never expect me to endure any of this. Jesus is testing us. And He goes on to say that you'll be tested, you'll have tribulation for ten days. For ten days. That's just an interesting statement. Do you realize what that says? That says that Jesus has control over the testing. He knows when it's going to begin. He knows when it's going to end. He knows how much of it is going to happen. And as he talks about the ten days, the number ten used in the book of Revelation has the idea of completeness. He says, you're going to go through the fullness of it. It's not going to stop short for you. You're not going to be able to get out of it. It's going to happen to the extent that God wants it to happen. But it's notice it's ten days. He doesn't use months, years, decades, or centuries. It's ten days. In other words, it's going to be complete, but it's not going to take that long. In the relative scheme of things throughout eternity, the testing doesn't last that long. This is an apocalyptic way of Jesus saying, I know it's tough, but just hang on a little while. It's only going to last a little while longer. Will you be faithful? He says, I'm testing you. I want to see. Will you obey me? Or will you make excuses? He wants to know what's in our heart, and this is how we demonstrate what's in our heart. Will we endure? Or will we make excuses that surely God wouldn't expect me to endure anything like this? But we notice, of course, Jesus' promise. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. He says, those who endure, those who are faithful until death, they will receive a crown of life. This is His promise to us. Endure. Bear up. Don't abandon. Continue on. And you'll receive a crown of life. You won't be harmed by the second death, which later in the book of Revelation we find out is the lake of fire. Instead of that second death, we get eternal life. How do we endure? How do we bear up? How do we achieve the promise of God here? I'll tell you the way it works is that we have to be separate from the things of this world. Far too often we place a premium on the things of this life and of this world. We want the material goods we want the good health. I'll tell you, just, just talking about that good health thing, you want to talk about how much we place a premium on that? 
You know, if there was an announcement time that went by that we didn't announce somebody who had the sniffles, folks would say we were awful people and we didn't love each other. But if somebody got up and said, listen, we need to tell you about brother so-and-so who's spiritually sick, folks would be in an uproar. Can't believe you said his name about spiritual sickness in front of everybody. Now, if you didn't mention his name because he had the sniffles that don't matter at all, we'd be in trouble. But mention that he's spiritually sick, possibly dying and going to hell, well, we're not, we don't want to put up with that. Why? Because we place a premium on, on physical things. More than spiritual things. We want peace in all of our relationships on the earth. We want to be comfortable. But what God wants for us is spiritual health. Heavenly wealth. And peace in our relationship with Him. And to maintain that, we must separate ourselves from the things of this world. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're dead to this world. We need to be dead to this world. The things of this world shouldn't be what captures us. As hard as that is. And I'm not saying I've accomplished that yet. I'm just saying that's, that's what he points out. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Beginning at verse 24. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Colossians said, don't be caught up in things down here. Look up into heaven, the things above. We need to follow the footsteps of Moses, looking to the reward. What good will it do us if we enjoy some of these material earthly things for a couple of years, but then we're burning in hell for eternity? What good will that be? But say we endure just some awful oppression, persecution, people beating us, and we die young because of it, and then we go to heaven. How bad could that be? We've got to learn not to be afraid to die in the Lord. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, John said, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. We of all people should be unafraid to die. And yet, we'll spend all kinds of money to hang on to even the most pitiful of lives here on the earth. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And we've got to understand this. That the worst thing is not that we might suffer here on this earth. I don't know how many times I've talked with people and the discussion goes, I just can't believe that God would expect us to endure that suffering. I just can't believe that. 
And maybe there's some sufferings that God doesn't expect us to endure, but I remember this, Romans 8 and verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says any of the suffering that God does expect us to go through, it's not worthy to be compared. The fact that what God asks us to do might cause us to suffer and might cause us to suffer immensely is not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us when we submit to Jesus Christ as we go to heaven. Jesus does expect us to endure tribulation. He does expect us to endure poverty. He does expect us to endure slander. But don't fear. Because if we're faithful until death, even death, even if what we endure causes us to die, he says, don't fear because you'll receive the crown of life. And the second death won't hurt you. And that is what is so important. And I want you to notice one more thing about this. Look again at the very first verse, Revelation 2 and verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who died and has now come to life. So often we say in our own minds, I just can't imagine that Jesus would expect me to endure tribulation, poverty, slander, and yet, isn't that exactly what Jesus Himself endured for us? Didn't He endure tribulation? Didn't He endure slander? Didn't He endure poverty? Remember when He said the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay down His head? You know what Jesus was saying there? The Son of Man is homeless. He did that for us. And so the next time we're saying to ourselves, I just can't imagine that Jesus would expect me to endure this, remember the scourge that came down upon His back for us. Remember the crown of thorns that was shoved down upon His head for us. Remember the fist that pummeled Him in the face. And the rod that was brought down upon that thorned crown. Remember the nails that were driven into His hands and His feet. And the people who passed by and mocked and slandered. When Jesus had this letter to Smyrna written, He wasn't asking anything of us that He didn't endure Himself for us. He is our example. And what happened? He died. Of all the suffering of anybody you know, you know anybody that suffered as much as Jesus? I'm not saying that there hasn't been anybody that hasn't ever suffered more physically. I'm just pointing out about the folks that we know. Maybe you do know somebody, but most of us, we have no concept of that kind of suffering. And yet Jesus endured it. And where did it end? Death. But what happened after that? said, the one who was dead and is alive again. He died and was given new life. When we endure faithful, even if it leads to death, just like Jesus, we will be given new life.
and the second death won't hurt us. Here's something to think about. We just need to understand it. It's going to happen. We are all going to die. Every single... There's not one single solitary person here unless the Lord comes before then. There's not one single person here that is not going to die. It's going to happen. I don't care what medical advances we have. We're all going to die. For some of us, it's going to be quick and painless. For others, it's going to be slow and torturous. Whichever the case, we are all going to die. After that comes the judgment. We don't all have to go through the second death the lake of fire. But isn't it interesting how many of us will work and toil and spend in an effort to avoid the death we can't possibly avoid, but will neglect to toil and work and endure so that we might avoid the worst death which God has said we can't avoid. Please, don't ever say again, I just can't imagine that Jesus would expect me to go through this. Because Jesus, in fact, does expect us to endure tribulation, poverty, and slander. Because He's testing us to see what's in our heart. And if we're faithful, we will receive a crown of life. You want to receive that crown of life? I hope this look at the church in Smyrna was very beneficial and helpful to you. Let's remember what Jesus does in fact expect from us. He expects us to endure tribulation, poverty, and slander. We shouldn't fear He's merely testing us for a short period of time. And He's promised that if we live faithful until death, we shall receive a crown of life. Let's also remember that Jesus himself has done exactly what he's asked of us, and he will help us accomplish his will. If you have any questions about the book of Revelation, about these letters to the churches of Asia, or about the Franklin Church of Christ, please give us a call at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody has given you this lesson on CD or on audio tape. If that's the case, may I please encourage you to go to that website. Again, it's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons there in outline and audio format that you're free to download and use in whatever way you believe will honor and glorify God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.